Revelation chapter 20. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 6 in just a moment. Verses 1 to 6. So membership candidates uh, took membership class in August. And you saw the fruits of, of that today. You'll have the opportunity to take membership class if you would feel led to do that with the elders in October, starting next Sunday. I do urge you to. You won't know if this church is right for you until you take it. You won't know if you should be connected to this body until you kind of see what we're about. And we try to make that as clear as we can up front. And I really want to commend to you, based on the authority of Scripture, you should be an active member in a local church. It's very biblical. It's also very practical. You need to have an urgency about pledging and placing your church membership in a faithful church, wherever that is. Take the time to study it out, but, but don't be haphazard and, and lackluster about it. And I just ask you to trust me on that. If, uh, if you'd like to talk about that further, I'm glad to. In our membership class, we focus on our church's beliefs and our common church covenant. And we covenant together to live in a certain way in light of believing certain biblical things. Uh, Christians' church covenant spells out where we draw the lines on official church fellowship. Not common fellowship out in the community, but covenantal fellowship in the church. As one said, unity has never been a very good rallying cry for unity. We don't just unite because unity is a good theme. We need a covenant to unite around for it to be significant and lasting and meaningful. And we have one. Another theologian said something like this. He said, fellowship is like art in this way. It consists of where to draw the line. You know, if you little kids are ever coloring a little picture at the kitchen table, for someone you love, if you're going to make a work of art, you got to draw a line somewhere, don't you? I mean, then you have to draw it again and again, but not too many places. You'll clutter up that picture. And so we want to be as clear as we can be, biblically reasonable. And we want to draw the line at things that are most consistent and obvious in Scripture, like the doctrine of God or the substituting work of Christ on the cross or the deity of Christ or the authority of Scripture. And we also draw the line in terms of covenantal membership with Baptist polity, like a congregational church, the design of male and female, plurality of elders, believers' baptism, which we talked so much about earlier. We try to equip our church members to guard and to proclaim the gospel rather than fire them. But we don't draw lines in the artwork of the church on matters that should be reserved for Christian conscience. We do not draw the line on end times views, such as we'll be talking about today. We do teach on it because there's plenty of biblical data that talks about it. But we do not include a specific end time view in our church constitutional statement. And so this calls for charity. The 1689 Second London Confession, chapter 31, is equally unspecific. We could have added an end times view. Other churches we have respect for have chosen to do so, but we chose not to. And so the implied question is, why did we choose not to? The answer is because we believe Christian orthodoxy allows principles of biblical interpretation, sound ones, to leave a person to different conclusions in the Bible. So we believe what we believe individually, but corporately we don't bind consciences on such things as end-time views that haven't happened yet. Revelation as a book, I'm talking about the 66th book in your Bible, as a book, the whole thing's revelation. 
but Revelation as a book that John the Apostle likely wrote from the Isle of Patmos in the AD 90s. Revelation as a book, the book that we, I've been teaching through, we've been studying together for about a year. Revelation as a book has a literary genre. You say, well, that sounds really heady and highfalutin. Well, you kind of need to know that. The literary genre type of Revelation is apocalyptic, and apocalyptic literature uses symbols and figures. It's the nature of the genre. It uses it differently than, say, a historical narrative or wisdom literature might use it. It uses it differently than the epistles that are reporting to churches on how they should order their church and how they should live their lives. Apocalyptic literature is a different genre of literature, the same as you might see a difference between a thriller and a comedy in the movie theater. There are different types, and we can recognize those types elsewhere. And so we should take that skill set to the Bible and understand there are literary types within the Bible as well. And so as we look at Revelation as apocalyptic literature, we are trained to expect these symbols and even cycles and signs in repetition in Revelation. Before we appeal to charity and get on with the preaching of Revelation 20, allow me to sketch out the prevailing views of which people differ as evangelicals and conservatives in good faith. I told you from the beginning of Revelation, HFPI. I told you to memorize it. His farm produces ice. Historicist, futurist, preterist, and idealist. Historicist believes that these events are intertwined with history. Futurist sees most of it as yet to come. Preterist sees most of it as having happened in the early church. And idealist sees symbols speaking generally to the entire church age. Now, Revelation 20 brings us to a new dilemma. It brings us to three more terms that are important not revolving around principles of interpreting the whole book, but revolving around principles for interpreting the so-called millennium or the 1,000-year views. The first one is premillennial. The golden age kingdom reign has not happened yet. The second one is postmillennial. The golden age kingdom reign is already happening now in literal governments. Or amillennial. The golden age of kingdom reign has been started in true churches, but won't be completed until Christ returns and wins the last battle. Now, I think we could further subdivide even farther because today's text itself in Revelation 20, as we will see, is talking about the millennium. Six times does the thousand-year reign get mentioned. And I think that the millennium itself can be divided between those that see it as already occurring and those that see it will yet occur. So I think the agreement in all of this is that the thousand years is real, that it's really a thousand-year millennium, that what Revelation 20 is talking about is real. It may not be 999 plus 1 or 1,001 minus 1, or it might be. But the reality of it is whether it is using a 1,000 specifically literally or to talk about an age, it is real. 1,000 years is real. The disagreement, as I've already spoken of, occurs as to whether it is happening or whether it will yet occur. And I'll tip my hand as to where my perspective comes from, even before we read this. I see that the thousand-year millennial reign is occurring, and I'll share those reasons as we look at this text carefully. And of course, a counter-thesis would be, and and, and amongst folks that I deeply respect and study, would be that the thousand-year millennial reign will yet occur. And we'll talk about that briefly as the sermon goes on. But with the thousand-year millennial reign occurring, 
I want you to see in this text as we exposit it together and look at it together in the first three verses that we see it occurring from an earthly perspective. And then in verses 4, 5, and 6, we see the millennial reign occurring from a heavenly perspective. And I'm borrowing brains to get there. This is, this is, uh, there's a lot of work done on this text. But without further qualification, let's look at these six verses together, shall we? It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And if you just let your eyes glance down there at verse 7, you will see thousand years mentioned yet one more time. And when the thousand years were ended... So what are we talking about here with this thousand years? That's the subject of today's sermon. And we want to consider, firstly, how this thousand years is occurring from an earthly point of view. And we're going to see that with the figurative language I'm going to expose here, with the sense of recapitulation of the cycles in Revelation that we've already seen, and with the curtailing of the devil's power to harm the church, and the nations in this epoch, in this gospel age. And so let's see within this first thought of the thousand-year millennial reign occurring from an earthly point of view, let's see that first sub-point, shall we? Let's consider how this language is duly figurative. It's figurative. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain. Is it a key? You know, I have keys in my pocket. Is it a key? Is it a chain, you know? Like, is it a chain like you got in your garage or you got somewhere in your yard? How about Satan? It's mentioned there. Is he a dragon? Like, is he going to come in looking like a dragon? Or do you rightly understand this language as figurative, as describing the nature of Satan or the nature of his binding? I think of it as the latter. The key is meant to describe the authority of entry or exit. We saw it back in chapter 1 of Revelation, the key. And Christ is king and having the keys. And We see in Matthew the keys to the kingdom and the involvement of the true church. The chain is meant to describe the length of a leash. You might think of it metaphorically like a dog that you don't want to get close to because it's a mean dog, and 
He can just only go so far. Revelation is apocalyptic literature filled with figurative, vivid descriptions too numerous to expose in this first subpoint. But I simply want to say that one of the reasons that I see the thousand-year millennial reign is occurring from an earthly perspective now during this, during this gospel age is because of the allowance of figurative language in apocalyptic literature. Another thing that I see from an earthly perspective is the recapitulation of cycles in the book of Revelation. Let's consider that by considering a few words within the book, or within the chapter and within the book, I should say. First, look at verse 2. Look at the aliases of Satan. It says that he sees, the angel did, or perhaps it's a way of talking about Christ, seized the dragon, and I've already said I don't know that it that I think that's descriptive language, that he's a, he is the dragon, that ancient serpent. Now, what, what comes to mind when you think of that ancient serpent? Where have you heard that before? That should take your mind back to the very first part of the very first book of the Bible. Do you remember before the fall of Adam and Eve, what happened to our first parents? That ancient serpent, what did he do? He deceived them. He got them to doubt God's goodness his advocacy for them. He made them think they were missing out on something as they followed God. And he questioned God's words, twisted them, knowing them. He twisted them and said, did God really say blah, 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 blah? And what was the result? We often blame the woman for sinning. But where was the man in all of his masculinity standing up and saying, as for me and my house, we will follow the Lord? Well, he's sitting back in the back of the garden somewhere playing video games, I guess. Certainly not doing what he's been called to do as the firstborn, right? God made him, and he presided over that wedding in the garden temple sanctuary that is Eden. And the trickery, the deceit of this ancient serpent. Well, that serpent, that's what's coming to mind here. And it says, who is the devil and Satan? These are aliases of Satan. Literally, it is Satan. And it's also ways of talking about, at the very same time, the nature of Satan, what Satan does, who he is. Listen to what William Hendrickson says about Satan's aliases. He says, John suddenly sees, the author that is, the Apostle John, he suddenly sees the dragon, strong, crafty, and ugly. It is the old serpent, cunning and deceptive. In order to describe him still more accurately, he is also called the devil or the slanderer and Satan. And he is the adversary or the false accuser. Being in the spirit, John now notices that the angel overpowers Satan. He renders him helpless and firmly binds him. I was doing biblical counseling with a friend some time ago. And a lot of times when I'm working with people and sit down with them, uh, members or not, I listen to the person a lot. And this is kind of what biblical counseling training tries to help you do. Some of you could, should consider doing that training. It would be a great gift to the church. Uh, but what I do is I just sit and listen and listen and listen. And then I, I ask the Lord to bring to mind scripture that might come to bear on this person's situation, whatever that is. And I remember not so long ago, I was sitting down with a dear brother, and the scripture that came to bear on that person's situation was Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 11. So let's just look at that together, because I think it's instructive for Revelation 20. you look at Revelation chapter 12, and don't lose Revelation 20, you'll need to go back to it. 
verses 7 through 11, it says, War arose in heaven, Micah and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan. So we've seen this before, right? Recapitulation. We've seen it before. We've seen it before. I could do it in other places in Revelation with you. It's most poignant here, though. We've seen it before. It says, the devil and the, it says, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, if you were to look carefully, if you pause after verse 9, if you look carefully at the New Testament in Jude and in Second Peter, you'll find that the, the angels that were cast out were chained up. They were put in chains of gloomy darkness. But we still have Satan masquerading as an angel of light, don't we, Second Corinthians? So there's something here that's intention. There's something going on here that is a, a partial binding, a curtailing of the influence of the evil one, even though he's still the prince of this age. There's language that's competing here, and we find the truth in the tension, not by abdicating both or jettisoning to one end or the other of the discussion, in my opinion. Verse 10 of Revelation 12 says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come for the accuser of the brothers, and implied the brothers and sisters, the accuser of the brothers and sisters, he's been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So what, what does the devil's tactics, what is he doing? Accusation. He's constantly accusing the brothers and sisters. You're not a Christian. You don't live like a Christian. You don't really believe that bunk. Let's go do it like this. Did God really say? Is he, see, how, see how predictable the devil is, even if he is effective. See how predictable he is. Right? He might not be able to squash the whole church. He might not be able to array all the nations against God's people like what happened in Old Testament times, right? I mean, we don't have that at this point. Maybe that'll happen at the last battle. We don't have that at this point. But he is successful making you doubt, coming at you with accusation. It's a spiritual war, is it not? A war for your soul. I quoted some time ago Charles Spurgeon. He said, a soul, it sure must be worth something considering how hard God and the devil both go after it. You know, your soul sure must be precious, right? And it says here he's the accuser. So we don't want to join the chorus of the accuser of the brethren when we say our prayers of petition. That's why we have assurance of pardon afterward. We don't want to badger tender consciences or constantly get you to ever doubt your salvation as if it's your work anyway. Look at what verse 11 says. And the devil never resting in this accusation. Verse 11 says, They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. So how then have we conquered the tactics of the devil? We brought this to bear on this dear brother's situation. Well, number one, by citing the blood of the Lamb in the face of accusation. Number two, by the word of their testimony. So the word of God and the testimony based in the word, maybe two and three there. So we need to know Scripture, and we need to share our testimony, things that have already happened this morning. And always citing the blood of the Lamb. It says, They love not their lives even unto death. Now, before I go back to the recapitulation of the cycles that are occurring here that's really central to the thesis, I just want to say one more word of application and devotional from this. Uh, when you look at this, you should be reminded again and again that Satan's tactics are predictable on God's children. And you should be reminded again and again that God has not left you without weaponry. So, for example, in whatever fashion that the enemy comes at you with, well, you're not really a Christian, are you? Uh, remember what you did? Remember how bad you were? Remember how you still struggle with that, even yesterday? Accusing, 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 accusing. If you try to fight that with, oh, I'm not that bad, 
you're just, I mean, you're stepping right into the trap. I'm really not that bad. Of course you are. What you answer with is based on the word of God, my depravity is pervasive. But based on the shed blood of the lamb and his finished work for me, you have no claim on my soul. My life is not my own. I was bought at a price. Devil, get thee behind me. You've been accusing the brethren since the beginning of time. You see? Now, that'll preach. It'll preach in your personal life. It'll preach at home. It'll preach in your most grievous time because it's biblical. It's not your work that fights off and wards off the enemy's accusation. It's Christ's work. And that's what your testimony is based on. And that's what the word is based on. And that sends shock waves through the demons, I can tell you that, because it's based on Christ's work. And that is a firm foundation. Now, when I look at this, I'm going to borrow some brains because when I look at this passage, G.K. Beale writes expansively on the parallels between Revelation 12 and Revelation 20, our focus text today. He points out seven ways these texts are similar or cycles or recapitulation. He says, first of all, in Revelation 12, you see a heavenly scene. In Revelation 20, verse 1, you see a heavenly scene. He says, in Revelation 12, you see an angelic battle against Satan and his host. And in Revelation 20, you presuppose an angelic battle with Satan in verse 2. And in Revelation 12, verse 9, Satan is cast to the earth. And in Revelation 20, verse 3, Satan is cast into the abyss. More on that in a minute. In Revelation 12, the angel's evil opponent is called the great dragon, the ancient serpent, the one called the devil, and Satan, and the one deceiving the whole world. In Revelation 20, the angel's evil opponent is called the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, restraining and deceiving the nations, not just restraining and deceiving the nations even any longer, to be loose later to deceive the nations throughout the earth. That's verses 7 and 8 for next week, or next time I preach. The fifth thing, Satan's expression of great wrath because he knows he has little time is in Revelation chapter 12, and Satan is to be released for a short time after his imprisonment in Revelation 23, chapter 20, verse 3. Sixth and seventh, Satan's fall resulting in the kingdom of Christ is in Revelation 12, and his saints' conquering theme is in Revelation 12. In Revelation 20, Satan's fall resulting in the kingdom of Christ and his saints is in Revelation 24. And finally, seventhly, the saints' kingship based not only on the fall of Satan and Christ's victory, but also on his saints' faithfulness even to death and holding to the word of their testimony, Revelation 12, 11. So in Revelation 24, the saints' kingship based not only on, their fall, on the fall of Satan, but also on their faithfulness even to death in the holding of the testimony of Jesus and the word of God, Revelation 24. So in both passages, resurrection is directly linked to the casting down of Satan. In both passages, we see that. So Revelation 12 now, let's turn from there back to Revelation 20 together and reconsider the conclusion of this first point. We've already seen how aliases of Satan are used both places and a sense of the key ingredients in this story are used both places. We already know about symbolic language such as seven, in Revelation 2 and 3, which is used in this book, or you have 12 times 12 to get to 144, 12 apostles and prophets, and then 12, 144 times 1,000 will get you to 144,000, like a complete number, which we've seen earlier in this book. And here we have 10, a very complete or full number, times 10 times 10 to get to 1,000. 
So we've seen this before. We've seen cycles. We've, we're actually on the sixth of seventh cycles in Revelation between Revelation chapter 4 and 21. We're almost done with them. And promises to the church come before and after and woven in the midst. We see beautiful ex- explanations of Christ and his deity, and it's woven throughout the tapestry of this book. We see a beautiful picture being painted, and it's, it's kind of star- stared at. If you stare at it, it's kind of a beautiful thing because you see Christ in all of his attributes throughout this book. But it's better to stare at it as a picture for beauty that's told about again and again in, flu- in fuller flower than to look at it as a logged linear book for scholarly conquest. This is to raise the affections of our heart toward Christ and give us hope of eternal life in the face of persecution more than it is to tickle our scholarly ears. We need each other and we need this book, but we need this book for the purpose that God gave us this book. In the midst of persecution, Revelation calls Christians to endure because of greater hope. And so as we walk by faith and not by sight, we can say with the saints of old that that this life is rubbish compared to knowing Christ. That to die is gain and to live right now is Christ, like Paul said. So these seven cycles, which are the seals and the trumpets and the figures and the bowls and Babylon's judgments, and then the white horse judgment, which was at the end of chapter 19, is recapitulated here again and yet fuller flower in chapter 20. Now, a word about that at the end of 19. Look at Revelation chapter 19, verse 20. It comes right before Revelation 20. It is reasonable that this could be chronology. It could come from Revelation 19 to 20. But I don't think that it is, and here's why. If you look at Revelation chapter 19, verse 20, it says that the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, in his presence had done these things. He deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive in a lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Now, it says the rest, in verse 21, were slain by the sword, came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So everybody's dead. I think that ends that cycle, the sixth cycle in Revelation, the great white horse judgment. And then chapter 20 begins the great white throne judgment, the seventh cycle, which would make sense with the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Again, I'm not asking you to divide over this, me with you or you with me. I'm just asking you to consider these things. That's all. Because I think it's important because it is, there is a chapter in the Bible about this thousand-year reign. And so we should think on these things. Now, before I moved on to my, move on to my uh, second and final point, there's just two points in this sermon, so I hope you'll allow me a little grace in the fact that this first one ran long, especially after the glorious baptism ser- service we had. That was really special, wasn't it? Wasn't that great? I was touched by that. But before we move on to the second point, I just want to say one last thing about this earthly perspective that's included in Revelation 20, 1, 2, and 3. Look down at uh, the end of, of verse 2. It says that Satan was bound for a thousand years, and they threw him into the pit. He threw him into the pit, shut the pit, sealed it over him. They might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. I want you to notice the, the language of bound and through. Bound and through. If you were to word study those words, you'd come up with a little bit of data in the New Testament. I'm going to share one of them with you. Matthew chapter 12, I think I'll share two of them with you, actually. Matthew chapter 12, verse 29, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees, and he says that he knew their thoughts. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And he goes on to say, 
How can someone enter the strong man's house, talking about Satan, and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Key language there. He first must bind the strong man. Well, who's the strong man? Satan. Who's doing the binding? Jesus. So you can't conquer that kingdom without the binding of the strong man. And this then indeed he may plunder the house. So Satan has been bound at some level during the ministry of Jesus. And it says in Revelation 12 that he was thrown down from heaven. We saw that earlier when we looked at Revelation 12. But So he's not completely impotent in this gospel age, but he is on a leash. That, that's how I'm looking at these first three verses. So it's one big batch of good news, and it's how we freely get to share the gospel and how it's going forward to the nations by comparison to the relatively lack of forward motion in the Old Testament. So the deception of the nations to get them arrayed against God's people in mass has been curtailed prior to the last battle. And for that, this morning, by application, we should be thankful. Like our relative peace to share the gospel, we should be thankful. So maybe this is, should be known as a, a realized millennium or a, an inaugurated millennium, as one theologian said. There's another verse that's really helpful to this beyond Revelation 12, 9 that says the great dragon was thrown down, which we're seeing again in Revelation 20. Consider John chapter 12, verses 31 and a little bit of 32. It says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now, this is talking about when Jesus is lifted up on the cross and he draws all men to himself. Note that word cast out. The ruler of this world will be cast out upon Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. He did something on the cross that certainly inaugurated the casting out and the binding of our arch enemy, that ancient serpent, Satan. You see? That's, that's some of what I think is in play here when we, when we look at this in Matthew and we look at this as well in the Gospel of John. Vern Poitras says it like this. He says, The present spread of the gospel to the nations, as initiated in Acts, is the result of a restriction of Satan's power to deceive. Possibly this restriction on Satan's power is closely associated with the present temporary demise of the beast, which Revelation 17 talks about in verse 8. The deceiving of the nations takes place largely through the activity of the beast, and as the beast can suffer repeated defeats, Revelation 17 shows one, so Satan can suffer repeated defeats in his power over the nations. The loosing of Satan, we'll see next time I preach in Revelation 12, 7 to 10, represents his final last attempt leading to his final defeat. So, so that is the, the first point, this earthly vantage point, and seeing how from this earthly vantage point that the millennium is. Now, secondly, let's look at it from the text from a heavenly vantage point. And we'll do that by picking up in verse 3 and then weaving into verse 4. So look at Revelation chapter 20, verse 3. It says, He threw him into the pit and shut it, sealed it over him, that he might not deceive the nations any longer until a thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. So notice the language there. He was bound in verse 2. He was throughout in verse 3. Similar language. Then in verse 4, I saw thrones. 47 times in Revelation, thrones is mentioned. It's almost always talking about heaven. It's good to infer here that we're talking about heavenly thrones. I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Now, from this heavenly point of view, we're going to see that the heavenly point of view is that the millennium is because of our role after we die as believers, because of our holiness after we die, and because of the fearlessness that we can have at the second death. So within that, let's see 
first our role. Our role is to be judges and priests after we die. These thrones are in heaven in verse 4. And it says that seated on them are those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Well, if we look earlier in Revelation, we see where that authority is vested. It says also, as I saw, also I saw in verse 4, the souls of those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. So similar language to Revelation 12. And here in this similar language, we see the part representing the whole. And it talks about in Revelation chapter 20 here that the souls of those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus for the word of God. So certainly those, those beheaded saints, their souls have passed from this earthly scene. They're permanent body has not yet been resurrected, but we know that when we pass from these earthly scenes, what happens when your loved ones who in Christ die? What happens? They're immediately in the presence of whom? There is no delay. You're immediately in the presence of Christ. So we have to reckon with that in whatever system that we come up with for inputting this into this biblical data into our understanding of death in the intermediate state. In the intermediate state, you're, you're immediately from Enoch to Elijah to Lazarus to to you're immediately with Christ. You see that. And so when we look here, we have that confident hope that that is the case, and we have a sense in which that these deceased, beheaded, uh, seemingly defeated saints are now reigning with Christ, as we read about in other places in the New Testament. Now, within Revelation itself, I think we can get there pretty easily. If you'll flip back to Revelation chapter 6, we'll look at verse nine through, verses 9 through 11 real quick. As it says in Revelation 6, Verses 9 through 11, talking about the fifth seal and that particular cycle within Revelation. It says, When he opened the, the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. Does this sound familiar? Right? See recapitulation? Cycles of judgment? For the word of God and for the witness they had borne. See our, our weaponry against Satan? Verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those earth dwellers, those who dwell on the earth? A packaged phrase throughout New Testament that means the ungodly, those that don't receive the gospel. And it says then in verse 11 of Revelation 6, Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. So there's some complete number of martyrs that is in view at the end of time. And it says that they have to be killed as they themselves have been. Well, where are these they themselves that have been? Where is this discourse going on? It's going on in heaven. This is going on with God's people and with Christ. We're having a conversation here. And when we look at this idea in Revelation 20 of the millennial reign occurring from a heavenly point of view, now a lot of things starts to kind of become clear that otherwise might be quite fuzzy, such as our role as priests in the kingdom, our role in joining in judgment with our Lord. Of course, it is his judgment, and we will be judged on the last day. But we have a certain holiness that we are assured when we get there, and a fearlessness that we can have because of what he has done on our behalf. So I want to round out the second point with those two thoughts, our holiness when we meet Christ and our fearlessness for the second death. 
So what we see in Revelation chapter 20, if you want to look down at it one more time, you're going to see in verse 4, after the authority to judge, he sees the souls of those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus that had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on his forehead, on their foreheads or hands. So their hands, their hearts, their heads, they had not given themselves, they had not taken the mark of the beast, they had taken on the mark of Christ. And whatever that mark means, it certainly signifies a dedication to one or the other, to either or. And so it says here that they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. I'm taking that to mean that they came to eternal life upon their death and into the intermediate state, and they reigned with Christ during this gospel age. Now, if that's accurate, we really can have some, some spectacular hope at funerals, can't we? I mean, if that's an accurate statement, then when our loved ones who pass that know Christ past these earthly scenes, they're thrust into this role and this holiness and this presence that induces fearlessness at the second death. It's, it's quite spectacular. Now, to substantiate this thought, and I'll make it after I finish this last read of Revelation 20, I want to share a few concluding thoughts. It says in Revelation 25, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. That would be the unbelievers. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. That is, I think, a spiritual resurrection where the soul is left from the body and perhaps you get a provisional body until the final judgment. Over such, the second death, it says in verse 6, has no power, and that's where the fearlessness comes in, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. In order to get thoughts like this, let's look at other places in the Bible to consider it. Think of 2 Timothy 2, 11. It says, this saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with Christ, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. So like Revelation 24, they came to life, now alive. We are hidden with Christ in God, I said earlier. Ephesians speaks of the current life we have in Christ, and so does Colossians. Or take the text that Brother Ron read during the confession and repentance earlier. In, he read verses 7 and 8, but consider Romans 6, 7, 8, and all the way through 11. It says, For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Christ. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, we will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The dead in Christ are holy before they get their final body. Old and New Testament saints are there. Their souls and provisional bodies perhaps are awaiting that final resurrection. We must, Stephen saw heaven, right? Acts 7. We must commend the immediate transportation to the immediate state upon death as over and against soul sleep of Jehovah's Witnesses or Purgatory of Roman Catholics, to quote theologian John Frame. And fearlessness is what Revelation 20 tells us that we can have in the face of this second death. The second death is to be feared by the ungodly. That's to be true. It's powerful and it's permanent. But... If your hope in the millennial reign is Christ, you have nothing to fear with the second death.
Graham Goldsworthy puts it like this. He says, the New Testament shows that all the ingredients in the end are there in the gospel. Man's sin is judged in the person of Christ on the cross. The new humanity is resurrected in Christ and ascends to the right hand of God. Satan is confounded and cast out. The decisive conflict has taken place. The kingdom of Christ is victorious. The old age goes on, but it can never be the same again. All history subsequent to the death and resurrection of Christ is history at the end. That's why we get this, this blessing, like a, a, like a blessedness from the Beatitudes. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. There are seven of those blesseds in Revelation. I don't think that's by chance. The second death has no power over those that are blessed in Christ. No power. None. This is a wonderful promise. Is it really worthwhile to resist temptation and follow Jesus in this life? Does the price seem too high? Dear brother or sister, take this promise to heart. As one said, don't let threats even from your own flesh intimidate you. He has shown you the value of your soul, and he has shown you the efficacy of following Christ. Consider how we have seen Christ reigning even in this very congregation. He's provided children to the childless and jobs to the unemployed. He's provided teaching to the uninstructed and friendship to the lonely. And his work goes on right here now. He's provided care for the elderly and encouragement for the weary. He's provided answers to our prayers and counsel for our difficulties. He's helped us to bear our sorrows and griefs and to share in blessings. We have elders and we have deacons and members all giving themselves faithfully to serve each other for the health of this body. So when Kurt leads us through the service this morning, and Ron leads us in prayer, and then Kim and company help Kurt with the music, and the teachers that taught earlier, and the ministries that go on out there, and the hundred little things that I can't chronicle in a sermon. This is all God's kindness to us, and it's all gifts from God to us in this age. Understand that. God is at work in this. So when we're attending, and we're giving, and we're caring, and we're praying, God is being kind to us. Think, think about Randy and Tiffany and Bobby and Matthew and Andrea and Addie. And, and how about many of you whose names are logged in our church directory that have been baptized over the years and become united with this body? Don't you have a testimony? Don't you depend on the word of truth? Don't you cling to the lamb's shed blood when the accusation of the enemy comes? This is all of grace, isn't it? Is there any part of it that isn't of grace? 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, What do you have that you have not received? Now, I know that good brothers and sisters might think that the millennial reign will yet occur. And I could be convinced of that. I know of respected theologians that have changed their mind on this over the course of their lives. And so I'm willing to do that too. But I'm not going to preach that way. This is what I see now. I give you what I've got. That's what I've got for you, is the belief that we are in this age. Those that believe it's yet to come, argue for sequence between chapters 19 and 20 of Revelation. They argue that Satan can't be cast into abyss and still be wrecking any havoc on earth. They argue that resurrection has to mean physical and not spiritual. And they see differences between Revelation 12 and 20. And some even prefer Old Testament texts that seem to talk about rebuilding the temple. But in the 1,000-year millennial reign that I'm arguing is occurring now, is occurring because the only place that we see this thousand-year reign is right here in Revelation 20 and in this apocalyptic literature, 
genre of Revelation. I'm arguing it's simpler, as one says, to see the second coming and the last judgment is taking place at the same time rather than arbitrarily separated by a thousand years. And I'm going to argue, I've argued and will argue in the future as we move to Daniel after this book that the Old Testament texts talk about rebuilding of a temple, but that rebuilding of a temple texts are not used here in Revelation 20 where we are. Instead, in Revelation 21 and 22, the texts that are mentioned are mentioned not about the temple, but about the new creation. So when we study Isaiah 60 and Ezekiel 40 to 48, we'll see that those texts are leveraged by this vision and John the Apostle to write about the new creation, Revelation 21 and 22. We see that Revelation 19, John alludes to Ezekiel 38 and 39, but also does so in Revelation 20, as we'll see in this next sermon, which points to recapitulation. Revelation 19 and 20 are referring to the same account from a different perspective. Finally, finally, I'm thanked by Tom Shiner, who's wrestled with this issue for many years, and he talks about the word resurrection in the New Testament. He says, quoting from Meredith Klein, the first resurrection is spiritual. They came to life. And there's a second resurrection when they come to life physically. He says that second resurrection is physical, and John speaks of the second death, which is hell. But there's a first death where people do not know God in this life. We're all born into this first death, so to speak, but the decisive issue is do you experience the second death? That's the thing that Jesus says you're supposed to be afraid of is that second death, remember? So do you see the parallel here? Let your mind get there. First resurrection means you have spiritual life. First death means spiritual death. Second resurrection means physical resurrection. Second death means physical resurrection and life in hell. We do not want the second death. And so this is key to understanding Revelation chapter 20. As if the first resurrection means bodily resurrection, it coincides with the second coming, then those that think it's yet to come are right. But if the correlations between the first and second death and the first and second resurrection suggest that the first resurrection is a picture of the spiritual life of the martyrs who reign with Christ between the time of their martyrdom and the second coming, then we're in it. So as I've argued, a thousand-year millennial reign is occurring as seen both from an earthly perspective in verses 1 to 3 and a heavenly perspective in verses 4 to 6. And I'm going to conclude by telling you why this matters. This matters to us because the realness of the millennium, of which every Orthodox Christian agrees, keeps us from being hyper-spun up all the time about the things that we don't understand. The shared belief in the realness of the millennium causes us to have hope amongst grievous, grieving circumstances, such as loss of a brother or sister in Christ. It matters to us because of our depressed purposelessness outside of Christ. It matters to us. It keeps us from being consumers only, but givers and servants and sacrificers. This matters to the unbeliever and for your neighbor because the unbeliever's state outside of Christ is, a, is a, a terrible, terrifying predicament. They must know Christ. Or they will be cast out with Satan and defeated at the final judgment, of which Revelation apparently talks about no less than seven times. We need to recover praise and evangelical, evangelistic zeal in the world because of the seriousness of the task. And hear me, unbeliever, you must receive Jesus Christ 
as Savior before you die. You want to have part in this first resurrection, and you want to avoid second death. Believe in the depravity of your own soul over against God's holiness and ask God to heal you. Receive the sweet exchange of Jesus' death for your life. Have ammunition against the accusation of the enemy. Have your name found in the Lamb's book of life. Leave faith matters not indifferent or undone. Cling to Christ in life and in death. Let's bow our heads together and pray. God, we ask